Ladies and gentlemen, coming to you from Northeast Pennsylvania, it's the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins podcast with Nick Hart, the best place to break the ice with your favorite players. Today's guest, Penguins forward, Tyler Secura. Olympic gymnast and best-selling author, Sean Johnson. Plus all new Penn's picks, semantics, and a question from the previous episode's guest. So let's get to it. Without further ado, please give a warm welcome to our host, Human Shrimp Vacuum, Nick Hart! Oh no! Uh, okay. Alright, yes, I get it, I get it. Hang on though, hang on. Let me, let me explain myself here. Give me just one minute. Well, first, let me welcome you all to a new episode of the Wilkesbury Scranton Penguins podcast. I understand your fury because we've been a little bit behind schedule when it comes to bringing you guys new episodes. We may have missed a couple of publication dates. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. A couple things out of our control happened. Well, actually, they were kind of all in our control to a certain extent. Uh, one was we had one scheduled to record during the All-Star break. Uh, and then we came to find out that there were no players around to actually record an episode. That caused a delay. Then we had a player guest cancellation, which also then pushed us back a week. We've been able to scramble to bring on uh, new guests on short notice in the past, couldn't pull it off, and thus it's been, well, far too long of a wait. A longer wait than you were promised here for a new episode of the Penguins podcast, but the good news is, to make it up to you guys, we have a dandy of an episode on our hands today. Penguins forward Tyler Secura is going to be here. One smart dude, big brain on this guy. You've been watching him all year on the ice for the Pens, and now you're going to get to hear from him. Um, I'm sure this is going to be a good conversation. It always is whenever you start to uh, jibber-jabber with Tyler Secura. Furthermore, our other guest is former Olympian, a gold medalist, and a woman who's been after my heart for years, Sean Johnson. Yes, I am geeked for this. Gonna be a good one here. Like I said, we're gonna make it up to you guys for keeping you left on red all this time. And you've been waiting long enough for the next episode of the Penguins podcast, so let's not waste any more time. Our first guest is already here. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure to bring on Penguins forward, Tyler Secura, Siki, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Let me start by asking you, how's life? How's everything going in your world? Everything's good. Thanks for having me on, Hardsy. Yeah, we uh, we're settled in in Pittston. We have uh, we got a nice apartment. Me and Devane live in the same uh, apartment complex, which has been very convenient, uh, more so for me than him because he <laughs> ends up driving me to the rink most days. Um, but yeah, my wife's here. We got a little puppy in December. Uh, we got another dog. Uh, she's seven, so life is pretty simple at home, and we're kind of preparing. Uh, we have a house back home uh, in Ontario, and we haven't lived in it for a couple of years. So <laughs> uh, our renters are out in May, and we're uh, we're kind of getting everything ready to go in terms of moving back home. And my wife's an interior designer and uh, loves to tinker around with all these, um, you know, different. Uh, Patterns, options, yeah. Patterns and options. So, uh, yeah, we spent a lot of time at home on on YouTube and things like that, trying to brainstorm and and come up with what we want to do for the house. So, uh, yeah, it's it's exciting times. Plenty of time to game plan. That's That's for sure. And you got uh, the right person game planning then if, uh, like you said, she's an an interior designer. Now, correct me if I misunderstood this. You said you added a puppy in December – and you already had your dog of, what, seven years old or something? Yes, exactly. So, so you added a new dog to the mix. That's right. So my my wife got a dog right when we kind of started dating. So okay. So now, obviously, she's she's became my dog as well. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, when we when we moved here, we, it's something we had talked about for a while. Um, and it just kind of happened that we got settled in, and we were looking uh, at a bunch of rescues, because uh, we wanted our, our original dog is definitely uh, she's particular, you know. She, I don't think she oh. likes sharing the spotlight quite as much. So, uh-huh. uh, yeah, we we determined that we wanted a smaller male puppy, so that she could kind of be the alpha and he could learn the ropes from her. So, <laughs> uh, 
We ended up finding uh, on Kijiji after not having much success with uh, rescues for a couple months um, from you know the Luzerne County right, right. Uh, SVCA and stuff like that. Uh, we found uh, two puppies and they went to a older woman and she couldn't really take care of them unfortunately so they were going to go to the shelter had her neighbor not put, posted them on Craigslist. Yeah. We met them at a, a gas station right by our house and uh, picked them up and he peed all over me and that's apparently a sign that's supposed to be a, a good sign that yeah. they're, they're marking and they're they're claiming you so uh yeah after the meeting we we discussed a little bit further and decided to move forward so ever since december yeah we've had uh, we've had a puppy around the apartment they're their best friends now so it's it's worked out really well what kind of doggos are we talking about uh so our original dog is named nash she was a jack russell chihuahua miniature pincer okay so she's about you know 16 18 pounds somewhere in uh-huh. that range and then our new one uh his name's puck actually really yeah and so he's a jack russell chihuahua so they have the same kind of temperament and the same kind of energy levels and they kind of speak the same language so <laughs> uh that was important for us and you said your your original dog nash she's a little particular maybe not necessarily wanted to share the spotlight or anything like that if they started to mesh and congeal do we have chemistry in the locker room now we definitely do we <laughs> thought it would take a lot longer to be really? honest like when we first were like you know it might take a couple months we'll ease ease it in uh, and by i think night two or three puck was already in the bed which is one of like that's her space yeah her uh, domain her domain and yeah they're just playing and fighting and he he was kind of bonded to his uh brother um, so he's used to having another dog around and so he's just obsessed with her and she'll tolerate him and every once in a while she'll definitely, uh, you know, take a liking to him and they sleep in the same bed and under the blankets together and stuff. So yeah, it, it's worked out perfectly. That's awesome. That's awesome. We are, um, I think as most people, huge dog pet fans here in the, the Penguins office. It's funny, you know, Jeff Barrett, our president and CEO has had a long-standing relationship with uh, Blue Chip, um, and just recently the office started fostering dogs. And the first one we had in here was Puck. I'm yep. sure you saw him I, shuttling I saw a dog around the office. A little bit bigger than the Puck that we have. We yes. thought it was such an original. A little bit bigger. We thought it was such an original <laughs> name too, and then he came <laughs> in, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" No one else thought of that. Yeah, but everyone everyone loves the dog. JD brings his dog around every so often. Um, Ali Deby, our social media manager, was actually dog sitting for Jamie Devan during the All Star break. So we had his dog in the office uh, during the All Star break and things like that. And what a what a break for you to move to a new place, move to a new city. I mean, right at the start of training camp too, thrown right into the fire, thrown into a new environment, new ecosystem, and have Jamie Devan end up in the same building as you. That's the right guy. To end up with, I I think, in my opinion, because, I mean, he's been around. He knows the area quite well now at this point, now that this is his uh, third season with the team. I've been here twice as long as Devo, maybe even more than that. And I feel like he knows more places, more hidden gems than I do at this point. Somehow Jamie Devan always knows, like, oh, no, if you're in this part of town, you go to this place, they have the best sandwiches. Or, oh, go to this place, you'll be able to get a great cup of coffee or or pot of tea or something like that. Has he been sort of not only your chauffeur to practice, but kind of your your tourism guide as well? Absolutely. Um, And I know, I knew Devo a little bit from the summer because we live kind of in the same area. Okay. Uh, so we would skate together in the summer, and, and we kind of became friendly through that. And then once I signed here, I pretty much instantly started asking him uh, all about the areas. And like you said, he he knew exactly, oh, you want to be here, you don't want to be here. Uh, you know, this this is something to look at. So since we were, uh, you know, looking up places remotely, my wife and I, we had a you know really hectic summer. We moved, I think, yeah. five or six times. and. Uh, we were we were just looking for something to to be able to settle in and, and do it as quickly as possible. Right, you know, coming coming right at the start of, or the end of camp. So, uh, the the place that we ended up living at was not actually one that I had initially found. It was through Devo, and it was an off listing. And mm-hmm. he's like, I think it was supposed to be his apartment, but it was on the third floor, and there's a lot of steps. And he's like, uh, that I don't know if I, I didn't really want to go all the way up there, and I don't mind staying in the hotel for. 
you know, an extra couple of weeks. And yeah. and my thing was like, I'm trying to get out of the hotel as quickly as possible so that we can get all our stuff in, get my wife down here, get the dogs and just, you know, settle in. So works out. Uh, yeah. He, he graciously offered up his apartment and waited in the hotel for a couple of weeks. And then, um, yeah, now, like I said, we, we live, uh, we live above him, uh, and we, we get along great and, you know, we get to, ha- get to hang out a lot and, and explore the city. And, uh, like you said, he's got all the hidden gems, um, under, <laughs> under his nose. So he, he really, uh, was a huge and integral part for us feeling comfortable here. Very, uh, entertaining guy to hang out with too. There's never a dull moment with, uh, with Jamie Devan. No, definitely. that's for sure. Um, what you said, you guys moved what, five or six times over the summer. Why yeah. so much bouncing around? Well, uh, so like I said, we we have a house in Ontario right. that we bought during the pandemic. So that was in January uh, of 2021. Okay. And then um, you know we lived in it for that summer. And then this past season we were in Cleveland. Right. And we were supposed to get married back in Ontario, but the restrictions came out, and her family is massive, and their you know her dad's one of ten, and they would all be oh. coming from the U.S. Oh, oh okay. And so that January. Uh, like the 2022, everything in Canada shut down. And so we kind of panicked and we're like, well, I don't know if the family's going to be able to make it over the border. So we switched our wedding to Cleveland. Okay. And the thought was, okay, well, if we're going to get married here, maybe we'll just stay and rent our house out. Yeah. And so we don't have to move. Yeah. Yeah. Put down some temporary roots. Put down some temporary roots. And then, um, you know, things got difficult in the summer. I didn't resign in Cleveland and we didn't know where we were going to be, but our house was rented out. So we were kind of nomadic for uh, for a couple months. We ended up going to her, her family has a place just outside Cape Cod. So we had our kind of pseudo honeymoon uh, in Cape Cod and then moved back in with her parents for a little bit uh, while we waited. And, uh, you know, we were living with my parents for a little bit. So, yeah, we were just kind of bouncing around and, and we were excited once we signed in, in Wilkes-Barre to put down some uh, roots and get into a place as quickly as possible. So it'll be nice for us to be able to go back to our home now. Actual and, house, yeah. kind of have that as a, because it, it was very difficult not to have that sense of, of home and, and to, like I said, be nomadic and kind of bouncing around yeah, a lot. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Now, we, we consider ourselves here on the podcast to be a big wives show. Big wives show here. Love to give the wives, even the girlfriends, ton of credit when credit is due, and it often is due. So let's... uh. Why don't you tell us the tale here? You said, what, she's got the big family in the States. Where did you guys meet? We met, um, so she was actually born in Boston. Okay. Um, her dad moved around a lot for work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they lived all around the world, and uh, they settled in Oakville, Ontario. Uh, okay. So, yeah, she was about, I think, 14 or 15. Um, so moved from the States to Canada. <clears throat> so she went to university in Canada. Okay. And she happened to go to university with all of my best like high school friends. Oh, okay. So leading into our respective senior years, I guess you'd call them, um, I was up visiting friends in London, Ontario at university, and she was up visiting friends in London. And our friend groups just happened to kind of be at the same uh, location, and, and we knew of each other just, uh, you know, mutually right. and, and hit it off instantly. And then uh, I was about to leave for school, and uh, it's a it's a pretty good story for our first date because we were, we had been chatting after that uh, mm-hmm. initial meeting, and and I was like, oh my goodness, like I really like this girl. I think I want to like see her again before I leave. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And so I I came up with an excuse that I had forgot my gym bag. Classic. While up visiting my friends, and and I just so happened to be in the area, so uh, so I asked her out to dinner, and we went out for dinner, and everything went extremely well and uh it was a like a torrential downpour like hurricane this is like an hour and a half drive normally okay the night before i had to drive back to school which was at dartmouth in yeah. new hampshire so that's like nine hours there yeah so uh i trucked through uh, basically battled through drove the downpour. a boat yeah to uh to her university and we went out for dinner and uh yeah like i said everything Went extremely well, and and we we moved very quickly after that. She came to visit me at school because uh, she has family in Boston, and mm-hmm. and it was kind of close by. So, uh, yeah, that was in that was like nine years ago at yeah. this point. Yeah, so time flies, man. Time definitely flies. And I I always love the the ritual of this whole thing, the courting process. How 
it couldn't just be like, hey, let's go get dinner. You have to do the whole Costanza thing beforehand. Like, oh, I forgot my gym bag. Oh, I'm in the area. Like, why well, not? And that's the thing, right? Like, we, she knew Everybody I was. Everybody does it. She yeah. knew I was leaving, and I was like, well, I mean, I guess I could have, but I didn't want to come off too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm driving an hour and a half the day before I drive oh, I nine hours. To, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, I played it cool. And <laughs> <laughs> played it cool. Yeah, as cool as I could at least. Um, but look, I was right. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and once again, it, it goes to show you how uh, how fate comes into play with some of these things. I don't know how romantic some of our listeners are, but with her having family in Boston, that's an easy little pit stop to to stop at Dartmouth on on the way back home or visiting family holidays, things like that. Exactly. Boom, just swing by where you're playing. So it actually kind of uh, works out perfectly that that was sort of her her web and her background too exactly we, we always say like we flip-flop like she was born in the u.s went to school went in canada, to canada had that experience that like my friends kind of had that i not missed out on but yeah, like but yeah. wasn't as much a part of and she had always dreamed like you know she's like uh like a little american like southern kind of like yeah experience and then sure enough yeah she comes and uh you know has a, a u.s experience visiting me uh for most of senior year so uh it, it definitely worked out very well Worked out incredibly well. Mm -hmm. And this whole, um, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, late-minute arrangement here with you coming to the Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins has worked out really well for the Penguins. I know there is absolutely no buyer's remorse on the team's behalf, but the way this season is shaken out, you and I spoke about this a little bit, uh, I think right at the start of the season, in fact, how things came together so fast to get you out here with the black and gold. But to sort of wind back the clock here and sort of uh, explain to our listeners how down to the wire you joining the team actually was because you were slated to actually go to camp with a different club right before you signed with the pens that's right yeah so uh, as i mentioned our our honeymoon was during uh, free agency so yep. um it wasn't much of a honeymoon to be honest i we were hoping to be back in cleveland we got the news that that probably wouldn't work out um but i didn't necessarily anticipate how difficult it would be to get a job um and and we went through, you know, the talks about Europe and things like that. Yeah. And that's not something that, um, you know, that we were interested in doing. So uh, it was it was a very tense couple months waiting because once that initial flurry of signings happens, then typically like the general managers kind of, now that we'll wait and see what we get for the NHL. Let's wait and, you know, we can get players, uh, you know, cheaper once it gets closer to camp. Yep. and. Um, roster start, spots started filling up and there there really wasn't much out there um, so we like I said we were living in my in-laws basement for a couple months and uh, you know we had only anticipated that being a, a couple weeks right if, if that and, and then you just get stuck there and, and we were just kind of waiting, waiting. For, for anything to happen um, so I mean I was spending most days on hockey db or elite prospects trying to figure out how many veterans this team has really so you were like doing the the research yourself uh, just I, to like figure out what every would fit. every single day i was just like trying to figure out a way oh do i know somebody in this organization who i can call um you know like at this point i think i'm kind of more of a known entity but i've also played in like the central most of my career yeah. so that's cut off from half the teams in the league. Like right. we, we had the the great fortune of playing Rockford, Milwaukee, and Grand Rapids a couple years in a row back in like seventeen, eighteen, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Still haven't been back, and now like five years, and it was probably eight years before that. Most teams in the East don't cross over to the West. So as much as you say, like, yeah, I'd like to think of myself as a known commodity. It's probably a bunch of teams that have never seen you before. Right, and and even if they have, I'm kind of like the definition of like a, a middle-class hockey player in a sense in, in like all facets of kind of society, you know, everyone's kind of going, you know, we're going to go younger, cheaper, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it is a developmental league at the end of the day and, right. and being, you know, I just I turned 30 years old last year and I, you know, I still think I have a ton of good hockey. I mean, I still think I'm improving personally, but uh, you know, I, I understand kind of the thought process from uh, you know, from, from up high that, I wouldn't necessarily be somebody who's uh, as coveted as as I felt that I probably could, should, should have be, been. Yeah. Um, and so after all that waiting, I had talked to Tom Kostopoulos, who is uh, obviously a Wilkes-Barre legend, and he uh, runs some skates back home. And earlier in the summer, he said, you know, we kind of are standing pat right now. We're going to wait to see, but we'll we'll reach out if anything happens, which is 
pretty much what everybody says. Yeah. So I wasn't really expecting anything. Um, and the closest that I got to uh, some some interest that could turn into something was from Providence. And like I said, my wife's from Boston. So that kind of would have worked out very well. And that was kind of, okay, well, just waiting to hear, waiting to hear. Finally got a PTO offer. Um, and it's not something that I wanted necessarily, but, but at, that, at that point, yeah, I was like, let's just go and, and, you know, I'll, I'll put my best foot forward. I've always liked training camp and, uh, you know, like I said, I just feel like once I'm out there and I'm on the ice, then I'll, I'll just let everything else kind of fall into place. People can see what I'm all about. Right. Yeah. So the day before I was supposed to leave to go to Providence, I got a call from my agent and he said that he had talked to Wilkes-Barre you know, they were like, well, what's, what's he up to? Would he potentially like entertain a contract offer? So it was like, well, if it's a contract offer, then yeah, sure. And so basically after that first call, it was a very quick negotiation, bang, bang. And it was done at that point. So, uh, after all that stress of waiting and, and not knowing, uh, we finally had something and, and had a place where we were going to go. And then there was some more waiting for my visa. <laughs> yeah, so I remember that. Yeah, those were those were a lot of uh, angsty times, but uh, I couldn't be happier with how it worked out. Obviously, like you said, uh, you know everything kind of happens for a reason, and and being patient and and sticking out and not going overseas or um, you know not making any rash moves ended up working out for me. Yeah, working out for you and working out for the team. You've been a key contributor here for this Penguins club, deployed in pretty much all situations at different points of the season. You've become the, the go-to guy at the face-off dot, whether it's, you know, just defensive zone face-offs or we need a big draw in the third period or that guy that goes out there at the start of three-on-three -three overtime and then runs back to the bench after winning the face-off. That's you. Has that always been a part of your game or has that been something that you've uh, developed and started to take pride in as you've become that uh, older player, like you said, turning 30 years old? It, it's been a very methodical... I'm a very, like methodical and you know, thought out person yes um and so i bet our listeners are already picking up on that <laughs> listening to this convo and so when i got to you know professional hockey i kind of realized like oh like i'm probably not gonna be this type of player in the league or like you know I'm, i might not get a chance to to do this at the next level so w what could i do what do i think i could be really good at um, and so, you know, looking at the power play, one thing I was like, I'm not going to be Patrick Kane on the half wall, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So I think I could be like in front of the net, though. So yeah. why don't I just make that one of my specialties? Okay. And face-offs were a similar thing. It was like, okay, well, if I can win face-offs, then they start putting me out on the penalty kill. Then if I'm out on the penalty kill, maybe, I'll, you know, I'll get in a couple more situations or late in games. And then once I'm out there, then I can kind of show what I have from there. So it was a very methodical thing where I, I kind of focused on that. Um, and then once, once I could uh, prove some trust and, and be a little bit more of like a niche player, I was able to get on the ice in different situations and, and show some of the other things that I have. So, yeah. Uh, last summer, or sorry, last season, I, I kind of played wing actually mostly. Okay. Um, which was a different change up, and I think looking back, my game is definitely better suited at center. Okay. And I think it, a lot of it is because of the draw. Like it's it's such a thing that is overlooked um, in a lot of different ways. I think, and uh, you know, it's vitally important. It could determine the the whole course of your shift or or that play. So. Uh, you know, it's definitely something I take a lot of pride in. Yeah, it's one of those things that, like you said, I think it gets overlooked. And I know in this modern era of analytics and possession numbers and things like that, I'm surprised uh, how little emphasis goes on, on face-offs and, and starting a sequence with possession or getting an easy out from your defensive zone because you won that puck right from the start. People tend to laser in on it when it is, say, the last minute of regulation or something like that. But how many face-offs are there over the course of a game? 30, 40? I don't know. I don't keep track, but... I'm not entirely sure. I'm probably but there's taking... There's a lot of face-offs, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm probably taking 15 to 20-something, you know, a game. And, yeah. And like you said, especially after icings, um, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in, okay, well, if you win that draw, you're probably out. You can get a change mm -hmm. and you're not scored on. Whereas if you lose it, 
and the other guys are fresh, you might be in there for. It's hectic. Yeah, it gets hectic it real gets fast. Hectic. And so, uh, you know, I definitely try to put an emphasis on, uh, on those big draws. And, uh, you know, I definitely like to be the person and I like to be counted on for those. You talked about how last season in Cleveland you were used a little bit on the wing. You say, hey, you know, maybe I'm not going to be the Patrick Kane guy on the half wall whenever you're starting out your pro career. And you're kind of going through all of these different um, not only options for you, but kind of being diversified in your deployment over the course of your pro career and things like that. I want to kind of wind back the clock now to when you were with Rockford and you guys actually had a great power play when it was you and your brother sort of uh, tearing it up on the man advantage. What was that experience like to get it, get the opportunity to play with your brother, Dylan Secura in the, in the Hawk system there? It was awesome. Um, my brother and I, we had only ever really played together in high school and it was like our, our secondary team kind of, mm -hmm. you know, it was, it was more for fun. It was, it was competitive still, but um, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily like the, the level that, um, you know, that we were scouts weren't outside. flocking to those games. Right. Yeah. Like our emphasis was, was on our outside teams yeah. um, as we called them. So, uh, so it was really, really cool because he was initially supposed to go to Dartmouth with me. Okay. Uh, he ended up going to Northeastern instead, yeah. which I think worked out better for him. Um, but since I had gone to college and then he went away, we hadn't, you know, we'd spent some summers together and stuff, but we hadn't spent that much time together uh, until Rockford because we lived together in the same house. I was cooking every dinner for him, <laughs> and he would do the dishes. That was kind of our uh, our agreement. You're like big brother and a, and a parent, if you will. Yeah, yeah. definitely. And just to, just to navigate those first couple of years, because when you turn pro, you know, it's there's no more school, there's no more, uh, you know, responsibility. I guess in a sense, like you're a hundred percent of the time, your job is to be ready for the next game, the yeah. next practice, and. Uh, just to kind of see that process and, and help them out through it and, and also to play with them. It was it was really cool, and that was something that, uh, you know, we'll never forget. We were able to play uh, an exhibition game together on the same line we started. In, in Ottawa, Chicago. In, uh, with Chicago. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it was a preseason game in Ottawa. Uh, so we started, and we played against uh, their top line, and uh, it was it was a really, really cool experience and, and something that we'll never forget. Mom and Dad had to be loving that, eh? Yep, they were there. Grandparents, uncles, yeah, it was it was very, very, very cool experience. That's awesome. That's incredible. So there's a lot of guys we see it, you know, spread throughout hockey that will have brothers or sometimes even cousins spread throughout the pro hockey level. But to actually be on the same team together, be in the same organization is a little bit more unique. And to kind of have that chance, like you said, you only played maybe one year in high school, to do it as pros, live out that dream, Pretty rad. Mm -hmm. Pretty rad, right? Yeah, definitely. And uh, like I said, it's not something that we, we take for granted. And, and we look back at some of those times and, um, you know, we we were in Rockford, like I said, living together, spending every day together. And uh, he was able to get called up a couple of times when we were there, which is which is the ultimate goal. And, um, you know, it was, it was really, really cool to develop that kind of like relationship on the ice too yeah because even in the summer like we we hadn't trained together as much or okay or, or things like that so um you know it was it was very unique and, and something that we'll we'll cherish forever something you'll cherish forever something you've uh been able to appreciate i'm sure as you've continued along your your pro journey here which has brought you to the wilkesbury scranton penguins tyler secura with us here on the penguins pro podcast we'll have sean johnson on in a little bit but tyler i want to circle back now to a regular occurring segment that we have here on the podcast you described yourself as a methodical person methodical player methodical thinker that's the exact kind of people that i love having on for segments like this one tyler this is a little game that we like to call semantics All right, Siki, here's how this works is what I do is I will cherry pick a word or a phrase that I think has just too ambiguous of a meaning that people will throw it around all the time, but maybe a bit too loosely. I feel like we need more requisites, more benchmarks that need to be met to sort of 
nail down what this word or phrase actually means. And over the course of this season, we've talked about things that occur on the ice as well as off the ice. But for you, we're sticking with hockey here. Sticking with hockey. What is a goalie duel? We hear people talk about goalie duels quite frequently, especially when, you know, two tendies are playing well. That seems to be pretty standard. But at what point do we actually cross over from just a good game between two goalies to an actual goalie duel? And I ask you to give us the answer. And whatever you say goes. You set the rules. I would say a goalie duel is when both goalies are saving above their expected percentages. So okay, um, it, it would have to be the them both playing. It doesn't necessarily matter if the score is you know low. I think it's if they're making saves that they probably shouldn't have made uh-huh. to keep the game close. That, in my eyes, would be a goalie duel. See, I'm glad you pointed this out. So you say the score has no impact on whether or not we are witnessing a goalie duel. The score could be one nothing in overtime. The score could be 4-3. to three. Some people may say seven combined goals is too much for a goalie duel, but in your eyes, if they're making the sta- saves, they're keeping the game close by playing on top of their heads... It is a goalie duel. Correct. Now, is there like a shots-faced threshold, a certain amount of saves that need to be made to also make it a goalie duel? If you have five acrobatic stops, but you've also given up three goals, so it's five saves, eight shots, are we in goalie duel territory? At what point do we now, both guys need to make a certain amount of saves in addition to being sparkling, athletic, whatever. I agree. I agree. Um, I don't know exactly how many. I think it'd probably be a percentage thing. Like, okay. I think with goalies, save percentages somewhere in the nine fifteen, nine twenty. Yeah. Anywhere above that, I would definitely say is is impressive. So, so once again, let's say the score is four to four, and we're in the third period. We can call it a goalie duel if both tendies have stopped 93, 94% of the shots in the game, even yeah. though four got past both of them. Yes. I correct. like that. But I think you would probably call it a goalie duel when the scores are lower because that's less to talk about it. I mean, if, if it's a goalie duel but a guy has a hat trick, you're probably going to talk about the guy that yeah, has yeah, a hat trick. I understand. Um, but, yeah, if, I also think if it's nothing, nothing, and there's – 12 shots each. That's, that's not a goalie duel. That's not a goalie duel. It's kind of just a ping pong match or a, yeah, you know, a low event game. Yeah, like rope-a-dope kind of. Yeah. If the goalie can set up a beach chair for a period, it's probably not a goalie duel. Exactly. Yeah. I like that. I dig that. And here's the thing. There was zero hesitation on your part, too. You went straight for it. You're like, this is what I think a goalie duel is, and how these are the rules that everybody has to abide by. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like as well. Good. That I'll we try to continue that. nail it down. These are the benchmarks that need to be met for a goalie duel. So, uh, what? You've got to stop a certain percentage of your of your say of your shots face. Pardon me, where you say like, hey, we're looking at over whatever league average is, stopping above what they are expected to save. So some great stops where you rob the other team to prevent them from racking up the score, but the score itself doesn't actually matter. No, I think it will end up being lower scoring. It's likely naturally. to end up, yeah. Yes. But, but not correct. necessarily. It yeah. is not one of the rules. Yes. What is the best goaltending performance you've ever seen in person? Uh, Does anything spring to mind? Where you're yeah, like, this dude was, was just out of his mind. It was probably Kevin Lankin, and who I played with in uh, Rockford. Rockford. Yeah, he, he has a tendency, like when he's in the zone, he is like unbeatable. Unbeatable. Uh, we saw that at the World Championships. He, yeah. He, he led Finland to the World Championships, and we played Milwaukee um, the one year, and they were... I think this was the year that COVID um, canceled the season. 1920? Yeah, towards. Um, I think he made 63 saves in a, in a regulation 63? win. 63? It, it, it was like 50 or 60, somewhere in that range. Yeah. Um, this Milwaukee team, I mean, you know, Tanner Janelle, the guy who Yeah, just they, got they were a for, good team that year. He was on their fourth line <laughs> in the American He just got League. traded for like 20 draft picks. Yeah, yeah, yeah it, if that gives you an indication, so... Um, yeah, he stood on his head and he was unbeatable. And I just remember thinking, like, what the, how did we win that game? Here's the Clearly. answer. Look, that guy exactly. in that locker yeah, right looked, there. Exactly, looked down the ice, and that's why. Wow. 
that's a lot of saves. Hold on. I'm going to see if we can do some some scratch research real quick yeah, to see if we can track down this game. Milwaukee versus Rockford. Um, yeah, he he was insane. All right. I think I found it. December 10th, 2019. It was an overtime game, if this was the game you're talking about. 2-1, Rockford wins. Uh, the shots on goal, <laughs> Sicky. The shots on goal were 56 to 14. Yeah. Milwaukee just had the puck the entire game. Yeah. And like I said, they were so good that year. And they play this like trap style. It was even harder to get but, through. Yeah. Yeah. We, we hardly touched the puck and <laughs> somehow came out with two points. The shots in the third period were 25 to two. Yeah. 25 to two in the third period. That is when Milwaukee scored their only goal, so they were losing one nothing going into the third period, having outshot you guys thirty one to eleven. They put twenty five more on net in the third twenty five just in one period. Get it to overtime, but then the Ice Hogs get the only shot of overtime, the goal, and number one star of the game, no surprise, Kevin Lonkadin, fifty five saves on fifty six shots in sixty one minutes of work. I think that qualifies that was a, as a game-stealing performance. Yeah, that was the best one that I've ever seen in live, for sure. Whoa. That is wild. <laughs> that is bonkers. And you're you're a guy who's who's seen quite a bit over the course of your career, too. You're a guy who's grinded your way up from being undrafted in college, playing in the ECHL, playing in the AHL, going from organization to organization, and you're going to be making a little bit of a, I don't want to call it necessarily a homecoming, but a return to Cleveland this upcoming weekend. This is one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast. A former monster that's going to be playing in the Cleveland Monsters Outdoor Classic this weekend. I know everybody's geeked for this one. That's no surprise to be playing in a high-profile outdoor game. First outdoor game the American League's done, I think, since 2018, for that matter, too. But over the course of your years playing hockey, have you ever had a chance to be a part of something like this, playing an outdoor game, even an outdoor practice or something at the pro level? No, I haven't. I will say we did an outdoor practice every year in Rockford for, like, the fans. Okay. So that was kind of a fun um, situation, but it, it wasn't quite to the level of this. And I just found it so funny when they announced it that Wilkes-Barre was the team that we ended up uh, – we were the team that ended up playing Cleveland's because – Obviously, there's a ton of connections, and uh, you know we got married there. We yeah. spent a couple of years there, and we really, really loved it there. So, it will be, in a sense, a, a kind of homecoming. Um, you know, my wife's gonna come. It's the father's trip, so my dad's coming. Yeah, my in-laws are coming. Uh, we have friends that are still in Cleveland that we'll see, and um, it's just gonna be such a cool experience. It's something that I don't even think I've really wrapped my head around, and until we're gonna be standing out there and looking around and like. Oh my God! This is an NFL stadium yeah. that we're playing in because uh, Cleveland shares the arena normally with with the Cavaliers. The Cavaliers yeah, Rocket so, Mortgage Fieldhouse. So you're definitely used to um, you know having a great facility, but this is this is next level. Yeah, this is next level. It's an NFL stadium right on the shores of Lake Erie. You look one way, there's the lake. You look the other way, there's the city. Being that I'm born and raised from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I have to pretend like I hate Cleveland uh, at, at every corner, every turn. But I always enjoy going to that city, and I have some great friends in that town too. I imagine you had a you had a blast playing for the Monsters the years that you did. Yeah, definitely. Um, we There's had... probably some COVID that prevented you from actually going out and seeing everything there was to offer. But... It did, especially that first year. Um, but uh, my wife's aunt, ironically, you know, like I said, from Boston, she ended up in Cleveland. Um, and so she didn't have any family around. She she used to live in Pittsburgh, actually, ended up moving to Cleveland. She travels for work, so she's gone yeah. most of the time. But uh, during the COVID year, she was like, well, I can't work because no one's traveling. And she just so happened to be in Cleveland when we signed. And so oh. we had a, like a very, um, you know, family feel, spent a lot of time with her. She was able to show us around the city. Um, and we, we developed a lot of friends. And, uh, you know, we really, I think Cleveland's the only other place that I've been where I've, it felt like home in a, in a weird way. And, okay, yeah, no, I, I understand know, what you're saying. I don't know necessarily what, what that was. It was just kind of, uh, you know, like I said, we we're about to get married. Um, 
all the planning and, and we end up getting married there. So there's just that the kind of magical feeling uh, when, when we go there. So yeah. uh, really looking forward to being back. It's it's going to be great. Always a good trip going to Cleveland. A little added bonus that it is the outdoor game, which now that I'm looking back on it, the outdoor game was announced eight days after it was announced that you had signed with Wilkesbury Scranton. So it really was uh, bang, bang news that you knew your return to Cleveland was going to be certainly an exciting one. And now it's the dad's trip, too. I mean, what a great trip to bring all the, the fathers back for. This is something Wilkesbury Scranton did pre-pandemic. This is the first year they brought it back post-pandemic. Once again, is this something you've gotten the chance to do before in your career? No, and I've never heard about this with any other organization at this level. At so the American League level, yeah. It's it's crazy, to be honest. Uh, and the, it's not just, you know, hey, dads, come down and, and we're going to put you in a Motel 6 or something like that. I mean, this is done so, so first class, um, like everything that I think in this organization, they treat us so, so well. Uh, yeah, I definitely knew coming in how good of an organization it was and how well we were treated, but something like this. And, you know, we, earlier in the season, we went away to a cabin. Um, I guess you call them cabins. They're, you know, beautiful on, on, on the lake uh, retreat with our team just as like a team bonding experience. Oh, nice. Um, and, and some of these things that, I've never heard of other organizations doing it, and I think it just makes such a difference. Oh, it! you're not the first guy to say that. I remember the first year we did this. Ooh, I hope I don't get the year wrong, but I think it was 2017-18, and it was the Belleville-Laval trip. So obviously with uh, the trip ending in Montreal, that's why you have that one circled as the dad's trip, and it was a wild time, but everyone remarking that, I've never heard of this before, or, oh, this was still done first class. This is amazing, and, and we really appreciate it. Not all those guys came back. Not all those guys are still with the organization, but it's just those little things that tend to go a long way for guys over the course of a season or even in, in a career that you can look back on and be like, oh, I made that great memory when I was playing for the Penguins. Yeah, and that's something I was going to remark on, too. I mean, this is year eight for me, pro, and there's been a lot of memories and and some are great some are more difficult but uh, I think that this is something that I'll look back on you know especially having stared the mortality of of my career in the face over the summer and and having some some difficult questions and uh and thoughts and anxieties to to have this as kind of a, a cap to you know especially for my parents and and like my parents have done everything for me they've allowed me to to chase my dream and uh, they've been so supportive. So to be able to kind of give back a, a trip in a sense and, and spend this time together, um, you know, especially now knowing that this might never happen again and this might be, you know, kind of the one-time deal, it, it makes it even more special. Well, you talk about looking back. We're now going to look forward, go into your imagination, your dreams, your your greatest wants and desires for this next recurring segment we like to do here, Siki, we always have our previous episode's guest leave a blind question for the next episode's guest. They don't know who they're asking it to, but the question can be about anything. It is totally up to them. We have gone down some weird and winding roads with this question this season, but our previous episode's guest has kept it a little bit. Uh, it's down the straight and narrow this time. This is a fastball right over the plate for you here. Tyler Secura. Are you ready for me to pop the question? I'm ready. They want to know if you could go vacationing anywhere in the world, all expenses paid, you don't have to worry about a dime on the entire trip. Where are you going and why are you going there? Two-part question. It's a great question. I'm, uh, <laughs> I had this conversation the other day with somebody. Really? Uh, similar well it was just about like people that have so much money that they can do they that. can do that no matter what not and have to worry about it exactly that must and, be nice and my remark was that i would be so paralyzed by being having all these choices by having the okay um you know i'm i'm like i said methodical and, <laughs> and I, i'm very easygoing so i would be getting on the plane being like i don't even know where i want to go yeah. to be honest yeah um now Okay, I'm going to do this for my wife. Okay. And it, it might be not the answer that people would expect, but uh, we're going to go to Arizona to Lake Powell. 
So uh, I think it's a man-made lake. Okay. This is a family vacation that her and her family uh, have taken in the past, and she's always wanted to do it. Um, you rent the, I don't know what the right word is for boat. It's not a yacht, but a. Oh yeah, it's just a boat. You yeah, a boat. well, it's it's a boat plus. Boat plus. <laughs> it's not plus. quite a yacht. Under it's not quite yacht, a boat. I don't know, houseboat. Houseboat. Yeah. Okay. So rent a houseboat and then you know travel. You just stay along, on the lake. Stay on the lake, and you can kind of dock wherever, and then you have these little dinghies that can take you boating and tubing and stuff like that. So. Um, because I do not have the imagination to come up with uh, uh, any extravagant kind of trip, I think that would be something that would do something be, for the wife. Yeah, that would be the memory that that we want to create. So that's going to be my answer. I like that, and that probably wouldn't. Uh, even though money is no thing, I imagine there are far more extravagant and exotic uh, vacations that you could have done and burned a bunch of cash. But you say no. Give us the the houseboat on Lake Powell. I'm a, yeah, I, I prefer to, and my wife and I talk about this all the time, like, we kind of prefer to, like, live beneath our means. That's that's something that, like, our kind of grandparents have always done. Uh-huh. And just, I don't know, I feel like at a certain point, you're, you're just chasing more. And when you have everything you need and not really any more than that, that's, yeah. that's kind of the sweet spot. You can, yeah, me. just be comfortable. Yeah. It's, it's a nice place to be, it comfort. Is. We we sometimes poke our nose around on like exotic, extravagant vacations in the office, not necessarily to be like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we could do that? But more to be like, who in the world has the money for this? There are like these underwater hotels now where you can spend like two million dollars a night, but be submerged like a hundred feet beneath sea level. And just all of your windows are just the ocean. It's like, yeah, I bet that'd be really cool, but. What, how I could spend that $2 million on something so much more productive than looking at fish for a night. And I think that's my thing in my head, too. Yeah. Like, I would just know how much it costs, and I'd know that these funds probably could have been allocated yeah. elsewhere to something that is much more deserving and meaningful. So like I, three I college tuitions so for I, the hotel room under the sea. Exactly. So I wouldn't be able to enjoy it because I knew that. Bananas. Yeah. Bananas. And you talked about how, you know, your your lineage, your your grandparents, you said, like, always lived modestly or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I was doing some research earlier this season, and you kind of have a uh, wild background. I don't know. Maybe not wild is not necessarily the, the right word to use. I don't mean to, like, make you sound like an exotic pet or something <laughs> like that. But what, you, you have, what, your, your grandfather, like, defected from war-torn Slovakia or something like that? Yeah. yeah. What, what's, what's the? Is there like a family story folklore that comes out of that? So people always think that Sakura is a Japanese name because right. I am half Japanese. Right. But that's on my mom's side. My mom's maiden name is Edamura. And my dad's uh, name, Sakura, we believe used to be Sakura, S-Y-K-O-R-A. Yeah, like Peter Sakura. Right. But when his... Um, lineage came over from Czechoslovakia during the Second World War. We think that somewhere in the translation, or it was written down on the papers as Sakira. Yeah. And it had kind of stuck. And, and yeah, wouldn't be the first time that's happened to somebody. Right. So, um, and when we had friends um, that their last name was Yip-Chuck. And so they had a similar story that they think when they came over, their last name was Yip. And then he said, maybe, but like my friends call me Chuck or something like that. So they put Dash Chuck. Yeah. And then their name is Yip Chuck. So like you said, I don't think we're, we're, um, you know, alone in that, but it is a unique story and it's something that's very cool. Yeah. That's like a, the Yarmir Yager story. Like his family was caught up in all that, that stuff, uh, during world war two. That's why war number 68. Cause that's, I think the year his grandfather was imprisoned or something like that. But your family ends up moving to Canada and now here we are two generations later, and you've got two pro hockey players in the ranks. It's just funny how the world works, eh? And we ended up in Chicago's organization, and they had Stan Makita. So when my dad was growing up, his dad's favorite team was the Blackhawks. So naturally, he liked the Blackhawks. And it's just kind of funny, like you said, how, so how, that, funny. how that worked out. It was a full circle uh, kind of moment. And this just keeps happening over and over again to you between playing with your brother that you grew up with but didn't get to play with that much playing in the Hawks organization, your brother drafted by Chicago when that was your dad's favorite team, and one season removed from playing in Cleveland, you're now going back to play outside at the Cleveland Brown Stadium. 
this is kind of crazy. It is. It is. I don't know if you got to like pick lottery numbers or something like that, or I don't know what's <laughs> next in, in the stage of your career, but it's probably going to be something storybook at yeah. this point, just I, the way everything's working out. I think if you hang around long enough, um, you know, good things tend to happen. And so I, I try to leave places better than I found them and, and do all I can do. And I think it ends up working out most of the time. Well, I don't want to get uh, too sentimental here, but now that we've kind of talked about and covered all this ground here, if you kind of look back to where you started, probably a kid just growing up in the, the greater Toronto area, wanting to play hockey, not knowing how big of a scale it would ever get, but going to college, being undrafted, playing in the coast to now eight years of pro hockey later, seeing everything you've seen, playing with your brother, facing the mortality of your career, as you called it earlier, and now being in a key role for Wilkes-Barre Scranton, not a bit player, but being out there for key face-offs, all kinds of situations, first line minutes some nights, depending on the game. Can you really wrap your head around this this journey that you've been on? What, what does it you know feel like, for, for lack of a better question, to have, to have gone along this ride that you've been on here, Tyler Sakira? It's... It's one of those things that when you're in it, it's a little bit difficult sometimes to fully process. Yep. Um, one thing that I tend to kind of look back on um, is some of the guys that I grew up playing with or against. Um, you know, they were the highest draft picks and, you know, kind of the expectations were that they would play in the NHL and have these long careers. And, um, you know, at this point, looking back, I, I think I've played hockey for almost a decade or more longer than, than them. And, and that to me is still like, you still have that mindset a little bit of like chip on your shoulder and not drafted and, and kind of, I've always had to just like grind my way up yeah. and like work my way up. Um, so that, that is something that I, I take a lot of pride in. And like you said, um, all these full circle moments and in, in the way that things have kind of worked out for me, uh, it's it's pretty incredible. It's, I, I love the game, and I, and I wouldn't be here if I didn't love the game. Right. Um, and I think that's that's kind of the message that I would take from my career is like the combination of passion and hard work and, and character. I think if you have those things, um, everything else typically will fall into place. Not all the time yeah. because I, I understand, and, and I've always taken the approach of like you don't know when your last game is you don't know when your last practice is. So like enjoy it and don't take it for granted. Uh, I had to work very hard just to make it into this league um, and still working to stick around. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so I, I try to come to the rink with, with a positive attitude and enjoy myself because I understand that it doesn't last forever. And this is just a portion of your life. And I have other interests and other things that I love to do too. Um, so this won't be, I never use hockey as, as something that defines me as a human being. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I can't necessarily discredit the fact that it is my identity as you know, a professional hockey player, a professional athlete. Um, and it, it's something that I absolutely love to do. And um, there are other people that uh, have supported me. And, and like I said, my, my parents and my wife, like she... She quit her job to come live with me, and, and there's a lot of sacrifice that goes into um, me continuing to play and to chase my dream. And ultimately, uh, you know, I've always dreamed of playing in the NHL, and I'm still going to continue to work and uh, you know try to make it there. But uh, just to, like you said, have these moments in going to Cleveland, having my dad for a father's trip. You know, these are the kind of things that I really am I've always enjoyed and I have never taken for granted but especially now I'm gonna continue to you know just kind of soak it in and, and take it all that's a it's a good message to take away from this not just in the realm of hockey as you know I posited that question but for people listening out there you you put a lot of the right uh, pieces of the recipe in there passion work ethic stuff tends to work out and always enjoy it because you never know when it's going to be your last blank mm -hmm. soak it all in baby yeah. soak it in yeah exactly my parents have always kind of instilled in me like i don't care what you want to do just like give it your all do it all yeah do wanna, it up you want to be a teacher like be the best teacher that you could possibly be you want to whatever you want to do it didn't matter so uh you know i think i found i was lucky to find that too early on because not everybody is able to you know discover that this is what they want to do right and there's a lot of soul searching and 
you know, I, I've done some of that too, um, just in terms of understanding that I won't be able to play hockey forever. <laughs> but um, I'm also lucky that, like, how many other people can say they were two years old and they wanted to do what they're still doing at age 30 and making a career and a living out of it. So I'm uh, very lucky. Yeah, it's, uh, you got to, what am I trying to say? <laughs> Hard to follow that up. Yeah, I hard, guess, really. hard, hard, hard to follow <laughs> that one up right there. I'll uh, I'll leave it at that. I I will not add to anything Tyler Secura said because he pretty much said it all, folks. That is a uh, just about a wrap for us here on this episode of the Penguins podcast. Tyler, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. However, before I completely let you off the hook, there is one last thing that we have to do. Same way we end every episode of the Penguins podcast. This is a little ditty we call Pens Picks. Sicky, it is at this juncture of every episode that I ask my guest for a recommendation that you can give our listeners. And it can be, once again, anything in the world, anything that you think they need to know about, something that makes you feel good, something that needs the word spread about. It can be simple, can be grand, can be small. What is your pen's pick? Okay, I'm going to have to think about that one. That's fine. So anything that I want the listeners to... A shout out, a plug for something that uh, you're you've been super into. People should know about this. Okay, uh, I'm gonna stick on the same theme. Then I'll go to my wife. She has a uh, Instagram account called Home Blondie, and that's kind of her design. Oh, okay, um, yeah, yeah. And and so everybody check that out. Instagram and, Home Blondie. Yes. Okay. And then also we have uh, at the Glamptons. This is shameless self self plugs. Do here. it up. This is the time to do it. Um, at the Glamptons, it's uh, it's a trailer account that my wife and I, we bought a trailer during COVID because we were going crazy and there's <laughs> uh, essentially nothing that we could do. And we, we didn't have our house yet at that point, but we were anxious to, uh, you know, kind of exercise those kind of muscles. I, I didn't know a thing about carpentry or, or you know, I was not handy at all. Um, and we bought a trailer and decided to kind of gut it and figure things out and uh we ended up it's pretty much finished now it's sitting at my parents uh uh farm back in king city ontario but um it kind of follows along the process of of some of the before and after pictures and and we'll probably be adding to that once we go home in the summer so the glamptons the glamptons so you guys can check out Home Milandi and the Glamptons. There you go. There's Tyler Secura's Pens Picks. Um, I'll throw out a Pens Pick to a certain actor who I recently, I'll say, rediscovered. Sicky, do you remember the movie Grandma's Boy? I certainly do. I had it on DVD. You have it on DVD? We were talking about it in the office the other day. I went home. I rewatched it. It's not a very good movie. Oh, it's horrible, but that's part of what makes it fantastic. And yet, Joel David Moore, the guy who plays JP, is carrying that movie on his back. Yeah, he is carrying that movie on his back. I can count on one hand the number of times I've seen somebody just put the team on his back like that, especially in a comedy movie. This guy, every second he's on screen, he eats it alive. Hilarious. Joel David Moore. If you're not familiar with Grandma, or you're somewhat familiar with Grandma's Boy, he's the 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 genius who does the robot voice the whole time. Mm-hmm. Maybe you know him from Dodgeball, or he's the skinny guy who falls in love with Olga on the Purple Cobras. Yeah. Joel David Moore. Where is this guy? We need to get him out there more. Good question. Need needs more respect. He he does because I didn't know his name, but I do know him, and he is in a lot of. Big movies. Not the he's not the leading guy. He's no. he's the, one of the supporting funny guys. Which you know, like you said, it takes it takes a bunch of those people to to make a good movie. And every plate appearance, he is cranking this thing yeah. over the wall. Yeah. Not one joke. Not two joke. In the case of Grandma's Boy, every time he opens his mouth, I am in disbelief. I'm laughing. My stomach hurts carries the movie yeah he's fantastic so a pen's pick to joel david moore don't know what you're doing out there pal but uh huge shout out loved you and grandma's boy and dodgeball and others but uh that's my pen's pick and that is a wrap for us here on this episode of the penguins podcast sicky really truly i appreciate your time so much there were 
ton of other things I wanted to get to with you, but we were covering so much ground that we just quite simply ran out of time here. So really, thank you. Uh, I'm sure the listeners appreciate it, and I sure as heck do. My pleasure. And apologies to Sean Johnson. We ran out of time again. Believe me, I am just as, if not more, devastated than you guys that we couldn't make it to Sean Johnson. We spent so much time here on Tyler Secura, and we'll be back again for a new episode with a new guest in two weeks. And I mean it this time. I promise, folks. We'll be back again. But for now, I will bid you adieu. Thanks for listening. See you soon. The Woodsbury Scrum Dependence Podcast is recorded live in front of no studio audience.